Welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Elizabeth Saunders, professor of political science at Columbia University. Uh, Elizabeth, welcome to the show, and congratulations on the new role. Thank you. Um, it's great to be here, and thank you for having me on. We're going to be talking about a book um, that you've just written, coming out in March, I think, called The Insider's Game, How Elites Make War and Peace. It's published by Princeton. Um, the book's about how democratic leaders, and you focus on the United States, so presidents, we'll say, have to engage in a lot of elite politicking and bargaining when it comes to decisions about the use of force. And you argue that this process tends to induce a hawkish bias into policymaking and produces basically more aggressive policies. And I'm going to ask you to lay it all out theoretically for us in a few minutes, but a few table-setting questions first. Uh, the first thing I want to ask you about is the public's lack of knowledge of foreign policy, or, or what's often, I think, referred to in the literature as rational ignorance. I think it's important to talk about because it, it partially undergirds your theory, but um, a lot of people don't appreciate the importance of it. So can you just lay that out for us? Sure. Well, it, it, it's a great place to start because it's really where this book project started. Um, I, I had for a long time had a position at George Washington University, and I used to go to lunch with colleagues uh, in our seminar room regularly, and I would listen to how they talked about voting, particularly those who um, talk about who study political behavior and voting behavior in, in the American politics context. And then I would go back to my office and I would read articles for teaching or for my own research about how democracies make war, how democratic leaders make feel constrained by public opinion. And the two just did not really seem to match up, right? We, we have this image in a lot of the literature that people go in the voting booth and with a sort of scorecard of what did the president do in the last four years on foreign policy? And they run down the list and, you know, add up the ledgers and that's how they vote, right? And there's certainly times when that can come to the fore. But we know from scholarship on voting behavior, that's really not how people vote. Um, and I can remember being astonished learning for the very first time, despite having a PhD in political science, that for um, for sort of the undercard, like the local elections and or even sometimes senators or um, congressional elections, people would just vote for the one that was alphabetically at the top, which, which meant that you had to uh, develop uh, randomized ballots. Um, so, so that was where I started. And, and as I dug into the literature a bit more, it became clear that the, the place to begin is not one of a fully informed citizenry, but that that's also very normal. That's, that's not an indictment of the public, right? I mean, I, I struggle a bit with how to talk about the book because, we're all citizens, right? I, I'm on this podcast to talk about a book about foreign policy, but if you'd asked me to come on this podcast to talk about healthcare policy, I, I would have said, are you, are you serious? That's crazy. No, I can't do that. I don't, I don't follow all the details. I don't even follow all the details of every aspect of American foreign policy. No one could, right? That's, we, that's why we as humans make sense of a complicated world by focusing on a few things and taking cues from other people that we trust on others. So if you had said that, I'd say, no, 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 don't do that. Call my colleague who studies health policy, right? So this is to me an important 
starting point, right? We're not we're not saying everyone the solution to this problem of hawkish bias or um, you know elites making all these decisions is not for people to suddenly cram the New York Times every morning and learn all the material. We, no one could do that. And we shouldn't. Ex- we should base our theories of democracy and foreign policy around how actually people live in democracies. So I really emphasize that um, what, what's often called rational ignorance is really just how people make sense of a complicated world, and it's it's the starting point and not something to be lamented. Yeah, people are deferring to people they see as in the know. Um, before we dive directly again into your theory. Uh, I think another thing we we should talk about first is the faithful intermediary model, um, as well as what its shortcomings are, because this is what you're playing off of as well uh, in the beginning. Yeah, I mean, so so uh, of course there are a lot of theories that look at this question of okay, so people don't spend a lot of time learning facts about policy issues uh, beyond maybe one or two that they really care about, and they take cues from elites that they trust, right? But there have been studies that have looked at this that say, well, that's okay because they can get, they can become as informed as they need to be by taking those cues. They can learn what they need to know. Um, Thinking of a book called The Democratic Dilemma by um, Lupia and McCubbins in particular, and in that model, their model is not quite what I call the faithful intermediaries model, but the spirit is sort of we elect people, we elect elites, and they appoint unelected elites to be the sort of transmission belt for the public's preferences. So we're busy people, so we hire a bunch of elites to go and run foreign policy, but this should basically reflect the, the, the public's preferences. The problem with that, and that's what I call the faithful intermediaries model, and if that were true, then there would be really no need to have this book at all, because the elites are just really the mouthpiece for the um, the public, uh, and they they implement whatever the public wants. Um, first of all, I think if you know anything about war and peace in the United States, that that's just transparently not true. But uh, but the other thing is, it denies the elites any agency, right? Elites are are human; they have their own interests, and they're not always the same perfectly aligned with the public, that actually has some benefits from the public's perspective, right? A little bit of ambition can actually be good, just like a little partisanship can be good um, for, you know, incentivizing elites to unearth information and that kind of thing. Um, But I think it's important that we, again, a building block of the theory is we have to deal with elites as they are, and they have interests and incentives and preferences that deviate from what the public wants in some cases. And so that's why I sort of set this up as the the alternative to a faithful intermediaries model. Okay, so let's get to your theory now. You identify elites here as legislators, military leaders, and administration officials. And your basic argument, again, is that these elites shape and constrain democratic leaders in decisions about the use of force, and that this process can inject deep democratic distortions into the public discourse and produce a generally more hawkish foreign policy through various mechanisms that you talk about. As best you can, can you just lay out the theory itself to clarify it for people? 
Sure. And just to start with like, who are elites and why didn't you include, I mean, I've gotten lots of questions about, you know, what about this group? What about that group? Think tanks, right. academics and so forth. And I don't, I certainly wouldn't deny that in particular, every, every, every war or every decision about the use of military force, there's a different set of elites that, that get pulled in. And, but when, you know, the job of us political scientists is to massively oversimplify everything, right? That's what we get paid to do. So when I, when I had to kind of like narrow the scope, I thought, okay, who are the elites that are involved in every decision about the use of force? No matter what happens, you've always got members of Congress who are not always consulted, but usually play a role at some stage, um, even if it's just to be outraged that they weren't consulted, which is basically what's been happening of late. Um, the military, obviously, because of the use of military force, the military is going to be consulted. Um, and uh, the president and his immediate White House team. So I just decided to sort of start with that set. And then I talk about lots of other kinds of elites in the um, cases themselves. But that's, that's again, kind of a very important starting point. Um, so the theory, again, starts from there and asks, okay, what are the ways in which elite preferences deviate from those of the public, right? Again, why do we need a theory that's separate from just the elites are there to do what the voters want them to do? One is that they have different preferences. It could be that you have a political appointee who knows a lot about country X and pays a ton of attention to the daily news in country X, which is in many ways, a good thing. That's why you would want that person in that position. They also may be more inclined to, to want to do something if something terrible happens in country X, right? So their preferences may be um, not so much different, but just the public may not have any preferences about country X, right? It may not know very much about country X, again, which is natural. So where you sort stand of depends on where you sit. Kind yeah. Of um, well, but also what you know, right? And, and right. It's not so much that you get the bureaucrat in, you know, I mean, sometimes you get bureaucrats who learn about country acts on the job, but that's what they're paid for. They're paid to pay attention and to propose policies for country acts. Right. They wouldn't be doing their job if they if they just went to the office and surfed the internet all day, right? So um, they're naturally more inclined to, to propose things that are actions involving country acts. That could be diplomacy, it could be aid, doesn't necessarily mean the use of force. But if there's some crisis where one might consider the use of military force, you have, you know, the the desk officer for country X is going to be more um, mm -hmm. uh, sort of probably pressing, right? Then you have the military, and, and there's a huge debate about whether the military is more conservative about the use of military force or more aggressive, I don't, I sort of sidestep that entire debate. Um, for me, it's more just a matter of they're the ones who are charged with making plans. A lot of those plans are made well in advance. And I, I'm always reminded of that West Wing episode where they have the the war plan for, for war with Canada. And it's on, like, the line is like, the calligraphy is beautiful, right? Um, we have war plans for lots of countries. Uh, and then when a crisis comes up, the military will get asked, like, what could, you, what are the options here? And it doesn't really matter if they're, I mean, they, they will weigh in, but they are the stewards of the tools and it's their job to think about what you would do with them. And that just naturally means that they will inject options into debates that 
wouldn't be there otherwise, obviously. Um, and then you have the the members of Congress, um, and that's a complicated topic in and of itself, but um, you have those in the opposition and you have those who are share the president's party. I don't really get into divided government for a variety of reasons, but I do think um, there are important elements of, of, you know, they want to get reelected. They don't want to take risky votes, they, but they also want to give their president, you know, if the, the president of their party, they don't want to get in the president's way if they don't really feel strongly about it, right? So there's important elements there. And all those things in general make it easier, particularly for hawks to get into war. And um, for for dovish leaders who might be quite reluctant, they have those people inside their administrations as well, right? So this is really a book about the doves, like at, mm-hmm. when you get right down to it. The puzzle is why there's so many doves around. Why don't they exert more dovish pressure mm-hmm. in these crises? And that's sort of what fascinated me. All these wars that are fought by Democratic presidents perpetuated by Democratic presidents. And so much of the debate today is about injecting more, you know, the restraint voices and dovish voices and diversifying the the debate. But when I look at these cases, there's plenty of people who were reluctant, hmm. who knew at the time this wasn't going to work, um, even the presidents, right? And the doves are the ones who are kind of like perpetuating, initiating in some cases and perpetuating war in others. Right. Um, and one reason is because doves still got to have people thinking about the military inside their administration. That's before you get to doves often want to have more hawkish voices to kind of counter the image of dove, Democratic presidents as kind of wimpy doves on foreign policy. And so you've seen, of course, lots of Democratic presidents appoint or retain Republican secretaries of defense, I think, for precisely this reason. So you've got hawks on the inside and people naturally attuned to crises in country X and military sort of giving options. And I think this is really a story about more wars coming from the Democratic side and less constraint on the Republicans who would naturally want to fight. And mm-hmm. that's really where you get the bias from. Can we talk about some examples of the leverage that these elite groups have over presidents? I mean, there's a kind of big obvious one of like a big public dissent via a resignation or something, which would be potentially politically costly. But there's a lot of... very rare, right? And Very rare. It's sort of a last resort thing. Yeah. But it's rare for a reason, right? It, the reason it's rare is because presidents are happy to do a lot to prevent that from happening because it's so costly. I mean, the big one there would be MacArthur in, in um, the Korean War. Yeah, so talk about that. Yeah. Well, the Korean War is to me like a fascinating case because if you go back to the, um, obviously the, the war is about the North Koreans invading South Korea and the, the, the military reversals and the suffering you know, on the Korean Peninsula intense and and tragic and i don't mean to imply that 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 isn't the central story but when you look at the record of american foreign policy decision making and military decision making in the immediate aftermath of the north korean invasion 
what you find in the documents in the Blair House, you know, dinner discussion that night because the White House was being renovated. So it all took place across the street in Blair House. What you find is it's all about Taiwan. It's not actually about Korea. Um, and I, when I dug into these papers, I was really kind of taken aback by that. And I had read, you know, I, it's the kind of thing you, you kind of know, but you're not looking at it with the same angle. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of people, I mean, Tom's Christensen's book, um, Useful Adversaries has talked about this, but, but I was looking at it with, through a different lens. And I thought, gosh, like these elites are telling Truman, the thing to do here is to worry about Taiwan, but the North Koreans are the ones, I mean, it just sort of like doesn't compute until you realize that there had been all this history in the months before the year, really before the North Korean invasion, where the China lobby in Congress had um, really been pushing for a, maybe not an alliance, but a real promise to, to help um, Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists in Taiwan. This was a really difficult issue for Truman. The Who Lost China debate, the Red Scare, McCarthy is really, this is this, this is all happening. The State Department, Dean Acheson discredited. Um, and so they do things like try to recruit a Republican to come into the State Department to be an advisor to, to Acheson to get some political cover. And they recruit um, John Foster Dulles, who had run for Senate in New York unsuccessfully, criticized Truman a lot, but was very interested in kind of doing more from the inside. And so there, there was this really political negotiation where they were haggling over his title and he was threatening Truman that he would go back and run again for Senate. I mean, this is highly political stuff. And eventually he becomes an advisor very reluctantly on Truman's part in the State Department. He is there pushing for this change in Taiwan policy. And he's pretty successful. And then the Korean War comes around and the backers of this new sort of more pro-Taiwan policy seize on this as, you know, okay, now we've really got to make sure we do something to make sure Taiwan isn't next. And so Truman and Atchison essentially decide, okay, this is inevitable that we have to make some change. Let's do it in sort of the most um, careful way possible. And they send the Seventh Fleet to the Taiwan Strait to both block, you know, to signal to Mao, like, don't get any ideas, and also Chang, uh, Kai-shek, to not uh, try to go back to the mainland. So it's sort of a two-sided deterrence. But you can look at that. I mean, that really put a lot of, it, it was a, the first of a series of steps that was like a one-way ratchet that increased the U.S. commitment to Taiwan, much to Truman's chagrin, right? He had been trying to go in the other direction. So that, that concession to these elites on the inside, um, one of whom was a Republican, but this included a bunch of, you know, a lot of the military, uh, MacArthur certainly, who became the commander in, in Korea, of course, Taiwan is this sort of like collateral policy spillover that comes out of the North Korean invasion. And I think that is down to elite politics, right? There's polling from that era. People didn't really have an opinion about Taiwan. Um, Even the who lost China debate was essentially an elite driven, Mm -hmm. you know, did anyone really think we were going to send troops to China to intervene in the, in the Chinese civil war at the end? I mean, you know, so, but, and yet it became this, this great, you know, the who lost China debate is, is a phrase we still talk about. So, 
Um, so that's an example where I think the policies, the, the long-term policy, the short-term and the long-term policy consequences were really driven by elite preferences. You also explore the Vietnam War. And I noticed you referred quite a bit to the great book by Leslie Gelb and, and Richard Betts, um, The Irony of Vietnam, The System Worked. Yes. Actually, before we dive into your contributions in this chapter, can you just fill the listeners in on, on the core argument? In that yeah, book? this is one of the, the greatest books, I think, that, that um, I teach sort of an article version of it. And uh, it just, um, it always, the students always are first kind of like puzzled and stunned by the concept that you could say something like the system worked in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. But once you get into it, I think they really find it, you know, almost mind blowing and it's um, simple and, and uh, perceptive accuracy. So this is a book that came out of um, uh, sort of the Pentagon papers revelations and other, um, uh, and of course, Les Gelb had been in, uh, involved in that and, um, Gelb and Betts make this argument that it wasn't that Vietnam was sort of a slippery slope where nobody, nobody ever sort of, um, it wasn't like an accidental, let's add more troops, let's add more troops, let's add more troops. Oh my God, one day you wake up and realize you've committed half a million troops to Vietnam. And that had been sort of the first draft of history version, the slippery slope. Um, they came in and said, look, this was, it wasn't intentional. Like there wasn't a meeting where people said, we're going to commit 500,000 troops to Vietnam. It will be a disaster and we don't really care. But they did show that a succession of presidents knew that the use of force wouldn't work in the, in the sense of achieving a victory, but that that wasn't really the goal. The goal was not victory. It was to not lose. And by that measure, the system produced policy that matched that goal. It was to do just enough to not lose and perpetuate and fight another day. And so it's a bit of a kind of garbage in, garbage out sort of explanation, right? That, that that's what the system was programmed to do. And for it, it, by some measure, like you could say, for 10 years, it that was successful. It staved off the collapse of the South Vietnamese regime from 1965 until 1975. Now, that doesn't mean they're arguing it was a good idea. In fact, it's very clear from the book that they think it was a terrible idea. Um, but, but as an explanation for, for how you could end up in the situation where, I mean, the documents are full of evidence that they knew this was going to be um, ineffective in the sense of winning. Right. right. And presidents persisted. They, they went in with they had they had their eyes open the whole time. Um, and I've taught this book for years. I think it's it's a brilliant book. Um, and I have sort of a couple of friendly amendments to it. But, you know, I think it's it, it's a really important book for jumping off Say your amendments. Oh, the amendments. <laughs> well, I mean, some of it is a little bit unfair, but um, the book is principally about Kennedy and really Johnson. And they they kind of end with Nixon, but of course, um, you know, they don't have access to the same evidence for Nixon just because of when they wrote the book. But mm -hmm. I, I make the argument that what they're really, their theory is really about the Democratic presidents more than it is about Nixon. 
um, or even Eisenhower, who chose, who was one of those who did choose not to fight in Dead Menfu in 1954, right? Um, my argument is that the 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 dovish presidents or the presidents from dovish parties, more accurately, because you don't the, the problem for a democratic president is regardless of how hawkish they are, they're still tarred with this this sort of party brand of wimpy dove, right? Right. Um, and so they feel this pressure to prove themselves, and so or to, 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 to take this critique of weakness on national security out of the equation. And so that's why they're particularly susceptible to this hawkish pressure. And, and what Gelb and Betts are describing is exactly kind of what I call a dub's curse, right? Do just enough to win, uh, just enough to not lose, sorry. Um, not enough to win, perpetuate a war that you know is not going to actually go very well, which is incidentally, completely contrary to what the faithful intermediaries model would suggest, right? Voters, it's hard to know what voters want, quote unquote, but it's a its a pretty safe assumption that most voters don't want to fight a war that their leaders think will not produce a good result. At the beginning, like in advance, they think that, right? So most voters would say no to that. Um, maybe voters would back a war that they felt was worth worth the cause and they couldn't be guaranteed a victory. But if the leader gets up there and says, you know, this isn't really going to go that well, but it's important that we do it anyway. I mean, that just, it's a hard sell. So um, this is really a deviation, I think. And Galvin Betts are right about the not losing, but the, the, the that incentive and the incentive to not try for an all out victory that's something that really applies to the Democratic presidents. I think what's interesting about Nixon is the Republican presidents who tend to be more hawkish, and even if they're not that much more hawkish, are, again, tarred with this um, image of the party as more hawkish. What they need is a result, right? They, they need something that they can call a victory. And if they can't get it, then they need to withdraw. And you see that in the case of Ronald Reagan in Lebanon. Like he decides there's nothing I can call a victory here. I'm going to just, it's, I'm cutting my losses. Nixon comes in and um, certainly has his own views about Vietnam, but that this is where the sort of, um, you know, Vietnamization and escalating parts of the war in order to achieve closure and sort of the decent interval idea, like he needs he, he needs something he can call a, a a result, and I think that incentivizes hawks to choose one of two paths that doves don't always choose. Right, either they escalate in order to get the good the result you want. So that's sort of Nixon um, in Vietnam and and the surge in Iraq, or just decide to cut your losses, right? So it's a little bit more on the extremes, whereas the doves, they, it's hard to say that, that what Lyndon Johnson did in Vietnam was a, to characterize that as a minor use of force is absurd, right? So I don't mean to suggest that sending 500,000 troops to Vietnam was small in any sense, but it was all in the Gelb and Betts stories, and I agree with it, intended to be just enough to not as opposed to aiming for victory. Uh, I wonder if we can trace back a little bit to the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. There's a bit in the book where you go into this. What were the salient pressures and constraints that Johnson faced then? 
Yeah, that's another one. You know, a lot has been written about the Gulf of Tonkin, the the episode, right? The torpedoes and the mistakes and, you know, McNamara and the Pentagon and the overzealous sonar men and so forth. Um, and there's, there's um, a lot of uh, interesting material in the Fog of War documentary by Errol Morris that is um, for those who are interested in kind of getting more kind of visual um, uh, information about that. And a great book by Edwin Moise about Tonkin. But there's really not actually that much written about the politics of the actual resolution because it was so overwhelming. Um, and it's just, it's usually t- treated as like a, you know, uh, a stop on the the train to war and a blank check that Congress gave Johnson and then was revoked and then you get the war powers resolution. But the story of how it comes about is actually quite interesting. Um, and a few historians have looked into, have looked at it in more detail. Fred Lagavall to some extent, Andrew Johns has a wonderful book actually, um, Vietnam's second, second front where he talks about the Republican party, which is a strangely absent player or, or at least not treated as, um, carefully in historical accounts as the Democratic Party. Um, and it, that's really interesting. Um, but so Johnson didn't really want to, ha- he wanted the congressional approval, but he didn't want to have to do anything hard politically to get it. Remember, this is part of his motivation for even fighting in Vietnam is to neutralize this this weakness critique so that he can spend all his political capital on um enacting the Great Society, which he knows is going to be a very, very heavy lift. His own party is divided. There are defense hawks who are also Southern Democrats who are vehemently opposed to civil rights. And his feeling, and you know, one could one could talk forever about whether he was right to 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 believe this, but it's pretty clear he did believe it, was that if he asked them to to accept the loss of Vietnam, he couldn't also ask them to vote for the Civil Rights Bill. Now, again, is that accurate? That's a question, that's a historical counterfactual we could argue about. Um, but I think his, it, I think it was born of his belief in the limited supply of political capital that any president has, especially when trying to push through legislation, which was his bailiwick, right, having been Senate Majority Leader. So, um, so he doesn't really want to have to do a whole lot. And there's a tremendous back and forth within his administration among those who believe you really have to get the congressional approval. This idea of you don't get Congress to declare war is still not a regularized. There had been the Korean War, which was a police action, but you know that that was the only other um, precedent. And, and the expectation was, I think, still that you would ask Congress for authorization. Some in his administration pushed for that. They they laid out the a plan. They laid out what the resolution would do, and then they realized, okay, we can do a lot without a congressional resolution. And they decided they'd put it push it off until after civil rights. Then you get the Tonkin episode, and it becomes just the the basically free lunch that the administration was looking for. Um, and so the story of whether to go for it or not, I think, is a very interesting one. And in the end, he doesn't have to spend any capital except sort of to convince his um, still at the time, his friend, 
Bill Fulbright, William Fulbright, who was the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, to basically make sure everybody voted for it, right? He wanted it to be overwhelming. And later, Fulbright felt betrayed when he found out not just about the lies that had been involved in Tonkin, but the, um, you know, the whole, the whole, everything surrounding the war itself. You also uh, look at the invasion of Iraq and the surge. One of the best scholarly articles I've ever read about the invasion of Iraq was uh, Kaim Kaufman's IS piece on threat inflation and the failure of the marketplace of ideas. And he talks a lot about elite management of information, um, basically various ways that officialdom can control the flow of information, uh, not only to the public, but within elites, crucially. Um, and if memory serves, I don't think you mention it explicitly in the text, but it is in your footnotes. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's I, a great I article. Think, yeah, you want to talk about that article and, and how you built off of it? Well, I think it's, it's, it's um, you know, the, there's, there's a lot of stories about Iraq that you could tell that are elite stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's certainly, you know, the informational um, parts of threat inflation, I think, are very, very important. And so that really underpins a lot of what I, what I argue about Iraq. To mm-hmm. me, though, the other angle that connects back to this, the puzzle of like what happened to the doves right. is the ease with which President Bush was able to get liberals who were pretty opposed to the idea of this war on board. And, you know, a really good example of this is Dick Gephardt, who had presidential ambitions. Um, a lot of the Democratic um, uh, members of Congress who had their eye on running for president remembered that they opposed the first Gulf War and that had gotten burned by that because it was a successful war. Um, you never want to be opposing a war that turned out to be successful, just from a political standpoint, um, just as it's not great to support a war that goes really poorly, as as many who voted for it in for the second Gulf War, um, second Iraq War, discovered later on. Um, but Gephardt, you know, he really was opposed to it, but he saw the writing on the wall and went around Tom Daschle in the Senate and made his own private deal with with Bush for the authorization. Um, and there's a picture in the Rose Garden of him um, standing with Bush and, and Daschle's not there. And it, it made a lot of Democratic uh, senators who've been working on their own more constrained. I mean, there weren't there was no version that was really going to constrain Bush, but there were certainly some elements that would have been um, more constraining. Um, and if memory serves, I think Joe Biden was involved in one of those efforts and was another who was annoyed that um, that that Gephardt had done this end run. And the headline in that, I think it was the LA Times, you know, liberal Gephardt backs Bush. And it was this, for Bush, he gets the, the, um, the even my even my critics are on board with this. He gets his congressional approval. He d- but the, the remarkable thing is how little he had to give up right? He didn't have to do much to get Gephardt on board. And same with Colin Powell, right? He he got Powell to become his kind of spokesman for the war by agreeing to go to the UN, which is a procedural concession. And so to me, it was more a story of where did the constraint go 
where mm-hmm. what happened to the constraint and i think and and why was it relatively inexpensive for bush to in just sort of political capital terms to to get you know to get the backing of those um that he that might otherwise have been a source of constraint. So that's where the Hawks misadventure comes in, right? Because the the doves are are have a harder time opposing constraining a president from a hawkish party. Um, and so at the beginning of the war, it's easier for the hawk to get in, right? The flip side of that is the hawks are the ones whose reputations depend on their stewardship of national security. Um, and for better, for worse, that's remained true, even when Republicans fight wars that go poorly. But, uh, you know, I'm, I don't, uh, political scientists can't explain some of these weird, <laughs> persistent, um, uh, you know, we, we can't explain the laws of political physics, I guess is one way of putting it. Um, or we just have to take them as, as part of the story. Um, but once things start to go wrong, then the hawk is, you know, the doves suddenly their their antenna go up, but also the hawks themselves are are not willing to, you know, they don't get a participation trophy for fighting, the way Democrats essentially once they once they've shown they're going to use force in terms of public opinion polling, they often get more of a pass for a lot longer from the public. So the that's one reason why you see the surge and this attempt to find a resolution in Iraq and the Democrats are that that's an important part of the story. They do, they do, it takes them a long time, but John Murtha and others um, finally begin, especially in the 2006 midterm elections to put real pressure on Bush. Um, And so I think the Iraq war is a story, not just of information control, but also of, just the melting away of constraint on the very permissive side. environment. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, maybe it's good now to go to President Obama's decision to surge in Afghanistan. That's especially interesting for your theory, particularly because, as you point out, by the time he decided to do it, most of the public wasn't really into it. Uh, but he did this major internal review, which provided like a ton of time for elite politicking. And he surged anyways. Can you can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, it was sort of an invitation for elite politicking. So I, I am fascinated by this case because, you know, here's a case where you have a president who had who had been opposed to the Iraq war as a he was still a state senator. If, if memory serves, my my sense of time is, uh, you know, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it was an asset for him politically. Yeah, it was an asset for him. He made the speech in Hyde Park in Chicago and um, in the primary against Hillary Clinton, who had voted for the Iraq War. This this is one of those rare cases where you have a, a real difference in their records, right? They're the, I mean, he didn't have to cast a vote, but he, he could claim he would have voted no, and she had voted yes. And it was a salient, people cared about that by the time... Um, you know, they, it was something that you could actually, people knew about the Iraq war, right? That it was unavoidable. Um, so he, you have a president who comes in and he had said these things about Afghanistan as the good war and we ignored Afghanistan. He'd said that during the campaign. I don't necessarily believe that th- statements like that are as constraining as others might think they are, you know, campaign statements. It was pretty clear that he 
he didn't want to be perpetuating American wars in the Middle East if he could possibly avoid it. And he seemed very unenthusiastic about, you know, he sort of agreed in the beginning to, he made a couple of quick sign-offs on proposals to, to send more troops. And then this, the, the, the big review you're, you're referring to was sort of the, okay, now what? And um, he really sort of, uh, I mean, in Biden's telling, because of course Biden was up close in this debate and, and very much involved as vice president, he got railroaded. Um, by by the hawks, uh, particularly the military. Now, I think that takes away some of Obama's agency and responsibility for for the decision. He he heard all of this, and um, there it's true that some of the the military leaks and the statements. This is when the McChrystal episode took place. You know, it would be terrible if he doesn't give us these troops, and and we can't. You know that it, it certainly did put hawkish pressure on him. And he had he had Bob Gates, who was a Republican holdover from Bush. Hillary Clinton herself, of course, was then serving as Secretary of State, and I think really has a more naturally hawkish position than than Obama. Although they got along um, by all accounts very well, but she tended to back the military, and so you had again inside the the democratic administration that was elected partly because of its anti-war views and which had other things it wanted to do this is what he has in common with lyndon johnson right the doves tend to want to focus on other things this was the era of health care reform right that was his big signature priority doesn't want to get bogged down in afghanistan but he also doesn't want to hand the Republicans a cudgel they can use against him on the Senate floor, right? So this is a case of just eyes open, wanting to, I don't think that you would ever have administration officials admit this out loud, but I, I think what this was in the end was a way of putting Afghanistan on the back burner, very much a Galvin Betts not losing kind of story. Um, and the, the, um, the choice to go midway between the, the levels that people were proposing, um, 30,000 troops, not 40,000, not 10,000. It's a very kind of split the difference. Don't do full counterinsurgency. Don't do nation building, but a little more than the Biden counterterrorism approach. It has that same flavor, right? And it, it kept the war going. Um, and... Sorry to interrupt. It almost, this is probably not true, but it almost feels like because Obama was so meticulous about it and deliberate that he read uh, Betts and Gelb and just like followed me. the playbook. It wouldn't you know? surprise. It wouldn't surprise. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if he, if he would have, I mean, I think that's maybe going too far that he did it intentionally. It would not surprise me if he's read the book. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. You know, I mean, I think we want our leaders to be informed. I don't, I don't, I think the I think the the critique of Obama as being overly overly professorial. No professor could ever endorse that view, right? Like that's <laughs> what's wrong with being overly professorial. Yeah, like people said cerebral, like it was an insult. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I have a, I could go on a whole other tangent about why it is incredibly important to have informed elites in these debates, and you want your president to be information seeking. Um, and to rely on people to give you good information. And these were all dedicated public servants. I mean, there's nothing, again, to, to treat this politicking as somehow bad, I think is really mm -hmm. misguided because 
these are politicians that that's what they do. They and they are supposed to want to get big things done. Governing is choices. You can't you can't necessarily do a, a major nation building intervention in Afghanistan and try to get healthcare reform passed. It it is about making choices. So I don't know that it, you know in a case like Afghanistan is it like oh I read this book and this is the way out for me I can just you know no yeah I yeah, was but, sort of being uh, silly yeah but you no, know what but I think it's worth it 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 helps highlight. This is the problem with elite politics and democracies. It, it's the way it is, and it's right. important, and it can be very good. And I think elites get a very bad rap, and I think that's very unfair. And I'm not even talking about you know the, the Trump deep state critique. I mean, even um, people who get criticized for serving in government and working on policy in Iraq when they didn't initiate, you know, they may have even mm-hmm. opposed it you know, at the outset, and then they get a job and they make money or have a prestigious post so they can go back in later. Like, that's an important part of our system. And we can't vilify those people, right? But it's it's a really difficult thing to talk about. We're supposed to talk about elites like they are the transmission belt for public preferences. And so one of my hopes is that this sort of normalizes thinking about this stuff as political, right? Presidents who don't really want to fight want to get other things done and who inherit a war that's a difficult political problem i don't have a problem with my president you know the president of my country taking a long time now what you could say is he was a president with very little foreign policy experience he allowed himself to be kind of portrayed that way and i think the military did take advantage of that and and others probably in the debate um and so the optics of it made it more difficult for him to choose the option that was closest to what he really wanted. Um, but that's that's learning on the job, right? This is terribly reckless for me because uh, I'm already short on time with you. But, you know, I remember paying attention at the time around the, the decision about the surge. And I remember all the material in the reporting about the elite politicking, all the stuff in Woodward, and all, a lot of this, the, the details that you mentioned in, uh, about that whole process. And on the other side, though, I also... So like, there's a story, there's a known story about, yes, the military railroaded Obama into surging. However, Obama was also a huge fan of that drone program, which he probably couldn't have worked with Pakistan to carry out if he wasn't still occupying Afghanistan. So sometimes I think they might, they made, there was probably a lot of doves in the Obama administration who made sure that the stories about the elite politicking that did happen were out there. And so it's a sort of, a, there's a, an availability bias there. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I think that's probably right. But I think, um, but again, a politician is, a, is, the job of a politician is to balance different, people's interests and do so in a way that lets them keep their job and ideally get things done during it right this is this is the 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 beginning of the obama administration remember i mean another famous thing from the west wing is like the presidency is 18 months and it's not that's one of those things that's actually kind of true if he was going to get he this is the, the other mind blowing thing to me about this time 
there were 60 Democratic votes in the Senate when he started, right? <laughs> Which is just an unfathomable, the idea of there being 60 from either party today. And of course, it didn't last because Ted Kennedy died, right? But even 59 votes was, this he this was like, he was going to do health care. And governing his choices. And Harry Truman gave up the fair deal when the Korean War broke out. I mean, and that, it's more complicated than that, but you can't, um, presidents don't get to pick their crises. They don't get to pick the wars they inherit. They have to make complicated decisions. And his calculus, I think, and his inclination was to not put boots on the ground. And as you say, the drones. Um, mm-hmm. And I think this served both those interests. In the conclusion, we've been uh, almost coming up to this, to actually talking about this, but in the conclusion, you talk about what you call two temptations. Uh, And I want to tease out uh, more of this. Uh, You're right, it's tempting to conclude from all this that elite politics pushes the United States into wars. And I'm like, yes, tempting indeed. And then you talk (laughs) about the other temptation (laughs) about, you know, this blob idea. Uh, and there is a straw man version of it, and there's a steel man version of it. But, you know, the the kind of more steel man version of it is that there's an, uh, you know, there's an insular elite network of insiders, so far you're with me, that persist in specific administrations, uh, but beyond them as well, and induce a generally hawkish bias into foreign policy. Um, I think what your theory does is add the nuance that no, there are there are it's a jockey. There are doves in that mix, and that means actually that sometimes that variable actually has an effect on on policy outcomes. Uh, do I have that right, or how how would you put it? Yeah, just to go back first to the first temptation, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I think um, I I definitely feel as an analyst, like as an academic analyst, that a lot of the treatment of elites in the in the policy discourse is is frustratingly simplistic because we also know there's a lot of academic research on elites in the sort of political psychology sense that really shows how elites are not perfect, but they they do better at efficient information processing. They if you know stuff about a thing, you are better at taking in new information about that thing. And the definition of thing is is pretty what they call domain specific, right? I mean, you don't, if you're an expert in chess, you don't necessarily get, you're not an expert at playing a different game, right? So if you want someone who's really good at agricultural policy, you don't just drop them into the Pentagon to, to pick military targets. Not that you would, but um, it's always astounding to me because I do follow British politics um, as sort of a sideline. I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by the story of Brexit, and they're constantly just putting ministers in with portfolios that they don't have a lot of background in. And mm-hmm. so I think that's a virtue of of our system. Um, I think we also have to consider like what's the alternative? You want to have people who aren't inexperienced. I mean, you know, the late great Bob Dervis was eloquent on this, right? You, you do have to consider what the alternative would be and accept those biases that elites have, partly because that's what we pay them for, their, their ability to just use their experience to make a quick decision under pressure and uncertainty. And do we think others would do better? 
Now, Phil Tetlock might say sometimes less experience um, or broader experience is better and accountability is really important for elites. But I don't think you go from that to elites are just, we don't, who needs them, right? I think of it more like can't live with them, can't live without them. Somebody does have to keep the lights on, right? Mm -hmm. So when you get to the second question of the blob, I think that it's important to, again, think about what I try to reframe all of this in terms of incentives. Elites respond to incentives. And if you want to change the outcome or the influence that they have on policy, you got to change the incentives. You can't just add more or different elites, right? Because they're going to just be subject to the same incentives. And I don't think it's the incentive to keep quiet or group think, which is a which has a very particular sort of camaraderie kind of, it's it's often thrown around, but it really means something very specific about a group of people who, who you know, staying in this group of tight-knit people. Um, and it's often used in Iraq. And, it, and um, if you know anything about that case, you know those people were at each other's throats. And this was not, there was no camaraderie in the Bush administration, I don't, I don't think, among the major, um, the major players. So, um, so I think, I think of it as if you want people to be incentivized to think more carefully about these things or to to consider alternative perspectives, you can't, vil- like, the way to do that is not to vilify elites and tell them they shouldn't be able to get jobs when they leave the administration. In fact, w- what we've seen in the Trump administration is anything that's sort of, if you go in and then you know your life will be terrible until after the administration you know, uh, if you don't stay in power, right, what incentive do you have to actually leave, which is the critical part of, of democracy, right? Peaceful turnover, uh, transfer of power. And that's not to say that foreign policy elites are, are you know, going to be the ones who stay, try to stay in office just to protect their careers and will cause a democratic breakdown. I mean, that's an extreme case. But you, they do need to make a living when they leave. And you want them to be able to get more experience and learn from their mistakes. And, and if you want them to be critical and admit their mistakes, they have to have some way of doing that within the system. So I don't know what the answer is, but I don't think that it's canceling them, so to speak, for having served in a particular administration, for having worked on war policy. Um, and I, I, I just, I get frustrated with this idea that like so-and-so, I mean, we need, we need to have a line, right? People who supported January 6th, maybe you could even say people who supported policies that are just so abhorrent, like family separation. But the line has to be high enough that not ever, you know, that only some people cross it. It has to be a norm and a, and a, and a, a bar that is clear and that people who are working on policy and just have a policy difference with, with other people aren't get caught up in that. Um, so canceling everybody who worked on the Iraq war or saying that there's been no accountability doesn't mean, I just, I, I don't think it would, it's productive to say those people shouldn't go back to their think tanks. Right. I mean, they, and one thing that really worries me, I mean, it, it, one thing that really keeps me up at night is, who is going to staff, not the second, I mean, the, the, who's going to staff the second Trump administration does keep me up at night. 
if that comes to pass. But who will staff the future quote-unquote normal GOP? Like who would staff even a Nikki Haley administration? There's plenty of, of competent, good public servants who served in the Bush administration, but it's not them that I worry about. It's all the people that they didn't get to hire who then didn't get to hire their staffers, who didn't move up. And if you think about it, two terms of Obama, a term of Trump, which was for all intents and purposes, another term of, you know, not the GOP from from the perspective of like the never Trump GOPers. And now you're either going to have another term of Trump or another term of Biden. That's 20 years. And it's all those people who haven't gone in and haven't been promoted and haven't gotten that experience. That to me is really a problem. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean the Democrats should go vote for Nikki Haley, but it, it, it means we should all be paying attention to the, the problem of this, this pipeline problem on the Republican side. A healthy pipeline of talent and the ability to, to you, there's nothing wrong with a think tank deciding that they don't want to hire this person because they don't think they're good or they, they worked on a policy they disagree with. But to have those incentives, you have to have a vibrant kind of marketplace of, of foreign policy elite. I don't see another, any other way around it. For uh, my last question, um, I, 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 I want to just, even though it's kind of long, I want to just read this bit of yours, that you, you know, a bit of an ep- excerpt. Uh, when I was reading, I became highly aware that you were highly aware of who your audience is in, in reading this. And I just want to see if you, uh, what you had to say about expanding on this. So here's the quote. It seems more likely that foreign policy elites, rather than the public, can raise questions of morality and restraint that will get the president's attention. Um, and you go on to talk about um, given voter inattention, debate and competition among informed elites may be the best available option for balancing moral and pragmatic concerns in foreign policy and ensuring that gross violations reach voters' eyes and ears. So, you know, part of your, what you're trying to solve here is why does the elite politicking process produce more hawkish policies than the public would seem to want? Um, and some of what's in that excerpt makes me feel like, boy, if we could get only get kind of like more doves who are willing to push within that elite politicking, politicking process, we might get policies at the end that reflect the public's wishes a little more. Yeah, but we can't all be relying. I mean, elites aren't saints. We can't, we can't, the the solution to our wish to have less war or to, to align the public and elite preferences better. So we only have good wars or however however you want to define the end goal. It can't be to rely on those who are willing to push. You gotta you gotta align the incentives so that pushing doesn't end your career, right? And that to me is just I'm I'm not a realist in the IR sense, but I'm a total I'm realistic about I take I try to take a really realistic, almost cynical view of elites because mm-hmm. I, I think anything else is doomed to fail. Yeah, because um, you know the history, right? And you know, I mean, I as you were reading that, I was reminded that this this was put to bed essentially before um, uh, 
the Hamas attacks against Israel. That's right. And there's been a lot of State Department resignations and so on. Yeah, and all, but also a lot of protest. And I think this yeah. is a case where, um, and my colleague at Good Authority, Michael Tesler, has written about this, um, you know, that Israel may be one of those rare cases where people really have strong, they're very aware of it. They And, and you know, it involves major religious uh, affiliations and cleavages. And, um, you know, it may be the rare case where you really do get um, the public more activated on these questions of morality and the, and um, the use of military force and, and military aid and so forth. So I don't suggest that it can never happen. It's just more, it's rarer, I think, than people people realize. Um, but for take the January 6th committee hearings, right? That was an intensely political fight to even have the, the panel. The decision to not play ball with Pelosi, I think, had a profound effect on the composition of the committee. But the people who, the Republicans who participated in lost their careers. And so it produced a lot of information that would not otherwise be in the public domain. It got a lot of attention. You know, maybe Trump will win the nomination anyway. It seems pretty likely. But there's, it also fed some of the information that's now in the, in the court prosecutions of him. So um, it clearly had an effect. But, at the, you know, you can't count on profiles and courage every time. Nor can you expect the people who who do what Liz Cheney did to be instantly converted to your point of view, right? So I think, again, you, you, you want to embrace the people who, you can't vilify the people who take a stand like that for their other policy views. That's one thing. Um, sometimes you, you see that where it's like, oh, well, where were they when it's like, well, they're running towards you now and you need all the help you can get. Um, but also you, you want to incentivize more of that. So Harry Truman and Lyndon Johnson deliberately raised their profiles when they were in Congress by serving on this watchdog, these watchdog committees for military spending because they wanted to be able to say they had, you know, to burnish their national security uh, credentials. And it's transparently political, but that's not always a bad thing. The connection between political success and knowing something about foreign policy is not something I think we want to discourage. So I, I just think that the, the idea of, of, of banking everything on, peop- on elites doing the right thing, that's, that's risky to me. Elizabeth Saunders, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for some really interesting and difficult questions. 